0: Welcome back, everybody. Just amazing to have these two gentlemen on stage with me. Um, When I was a teenager and I first seriously started buying records, it suddenly occurred to me to look at who made those records as well as who played on them. And the names Joe Boyd and John Wood and Witch Season Productions and a little picture of a witch on a broomstick seemed to turn up on all the albums that I bought and I bought 18 of them with me today I don't know if you can see them uh, around the stage and they all turned out to be absolute classics of folk rock and um, you can, if you can't see the albums they're by John Martin they're by Nick Drake they're by Fairport Convention they're by Sandy Denny uh, there's just every name that you could think of at that time and what I hope we might do gentlemen today is take people to a time and a place and evoke some music and some people. And the time would be the 1960s and 70s when you were both working together. Um, and the place would be Sound Technique Studios, which was really at the heart of, of all of this recording. And the people would be some of the names that I've just mentioned. So please will you welcome Joe Boyd and John Wood to the stage. <laughs> So we're going back to the mid-1960s now, and Joe, you're an American, and you're here in London. What brought you to London in the first place?
1: Well, I first came to London in the spring of 64 as a tour manager for a package called The Blues and Gospel Caravan with Muddy Waters and Sister Rosetta Tharp, Brandon McGee, Sonny Terry, Reverend Gary Davis. And I, you know, I kind of lucked into that, job because I promoted some blues concerts when I was a student at Harvard and I got to know a local promoter and he recommended me to George Ween who was a promoter who was looking for a tour manager and so I came here and this was a time when these artists Muddy Water, these fantastic artists couldn't get arrested in America and the first night at Bristol Colston Hall was packed there were queues of kids waiting for autographs at the stage door, and I just kind of went, "I'm home." You know, <laughs> this is my, this is the sort of audience that I would. I, I, mean, I wanted to be a record producer. That was my goal, mm. and uh, this is the kind of audience I want
0: to make records for. Meanwhile, John, I think you might have been working at Decca.
2: Were you? I started at Decca. Uh, that's where I started learning to be a recording engineer I suppose and um, then through a series of a couple of stupid moves I ended up at an independent studio which was called Levy's Sound Studios which was part of another company who owned Oriel Records and I ended up there and didn't enjoy it at all I was stuck there for three years and getting increasingly frustrated and Technical engineer there, a guy called Jeff Frost, and I equally got frustrated. And finally, um, his mother put some money up and uh, we started a studio. I mean, it really was that.
0: Sound Techniques. Yeah, and that was
2: Sound Techniques. In Chelsea. In Chelsea, yeah. I mean, so Jeff left first to find a building. And in those days, you had to. Recording studios weren't that usual. You weren't usually sort of put together. So that the, the classification was for a light industrial under the planning rates. So we ended up with this building in uh, Chelsea, which had been a dairy.
0: It had a cow's head over the door, didn't it? Yeah, oh,
2: yeah, yeah. It, it, it was owned <laughs> by this family who uh, had been supplying milk to the sort of west of London, I think, for the last hundred years or something. And by the time... The building we were in, they actually kept cows in there 24 hours a day. Really? I mean, it, it was you know, milk-fed, milked, and you know, it was like intensive farming.
0: So quite a conversion that needed so, to well, go on to make it into a studio. Well, it was,
2: it, well by the time we got it, I, I don't know what it had been used for before, but we took the, we took the first and second floors. It was a 1,000 square feet footprint. And then we knocked out the middle, of, so we had a double height section in the middle so we had like three 300 square feet one end 200 square feet the other and a big double height bit in the middle and um you know <laughs> put a studio together you know as, as and you jeff do built,
0: jeff built the desk didn't he yeah we hadn't got
2: any money i mean much so uh, yeah we, we we ended up by build, having to build our own desks build our own speaker cabinets all sorts of and before we'd finished before we'd finished building our own desk we'd Built one for somebody else, and and in fact, what then happened is the whole f- business sort of split, and we had uh, a manufacturing by within two years. We got a manufacturing business as well as the studio.
0: So Jeff was upstairs building the desks and you were downstairs recording the well, albums. Well,
2: it was a bit like that. It wasn't quite like that. We had to, we had to have a red, red light in the workshop and as soon as you know, the red light went on, everybody had to keep quiet and stop happening. So having, they had to stop building yeah, the yeah, desks you know, while you did a yeah, take. Or, n- or not use the coil <laughs> wind or whatever, yeah.
0: I'm well, just interested in, in your recording technique because I, I believe that your aim was to capture as much of the sound live as it were as you possibly could is is that right
2: well there wasn't no uh, there was no other way to record in those days that's what you did you know you got everybody in a room and you did the best you could with it and it wouldn't matter really whether you were recording judy collins or a commercial for crisps
1: yeah i mean i think it's important to keep in mind the perspective of historically in terms of the technical history when i started working with john we worked on in mono or stereo and within the course of I don't know eight or ten years of working together it went to four track eight track 16 track 24 track all within that period of time each one completely transforming the way people would work but when we started it was you know and, and when we finished we still liked recording everybody together yeah, yeah. Well, I, you, you all,
2: I mean, well, I, th- I think we, we always had in our brain, you know, and your mindset, because you set, when you set out on a session, or well, for me, when I set out, I've got an idea of how I want to see it finish, I mean, which sounds odd. But, so you would always be thinking in terms of a whole, of the whole. You weren't thinking in terms of a track here and a track there or whatever. You, you were always thinking in terms of the whole pick, sound picture. Mm. So, and that's partly because of, you know, when we started. Yeah, we, you know, stereo, stereo w- wasn't even being used for pops. So
0: records. was it about the placement of the microphones in the room?
2: Well, do you do, <laughs> just place them where, where I'd always placed them. John's being,
1: you know, typically, you know, dismissive of subtlety and complications. But, um, but the fact is, I think people who've worked in studios today... Maybe not, not always, but in my experience, if you go into a studio and you're working with a young engineer, and you're sitting in the control room listening to the sound of an instrument coming through the speakers, and its sound isn't quite right. it isn't quite exactly what you had in mind, or it's a bit top here, a bit bottomy, or a bit this or a bit that, the first impulse of a young engineer is to reach, you know, and do something on the board. And John would never do that. John would go, mutter, mutter, and get up and go downstairs and either change the microphone, move the microphone, or move the musician. Because the great thing about sound techniques was because of this big space, this two-floor high space, on one side there was the office and and the toilet. And the toilet had plumbing under it. So it was deeper than the control room, which was on the other side. And then in the middle you had the full height of the two stories. So you had three different heights. And different acoustics, yeah. Different acoustics. So you could stick somebody under the control room or under the office and toilet with a lower ceiling or in the middle with the highest ceiling. And there were baffles and things like that. So there was a lot of choice and I think almost never did John or you know ever want to change the EQ that was something you saved for mixing
0: I want to hear more about UFO though because I did mention it earlier you you went away from that so so I got fired by (laughs) Electra
1: right and so I needed to I wanted to stay I wanted to manage the incredible string band who weren't earning any money and John Hopkins who was just starting the International Times wanted to stop being a photographer, which is what he'd been, and he and I got together and um, figured, tried to figure out a way to pay our rent. And he had just had a big party at the Roundhouse for the launch of the International Times. Pink Floyd and Soft Machine had both played, and, uh, and the atmosphere had been great. And, and I just said, why don't we just do a party like that somewhere every week and charge admission? And he said, okay, let's let's look for a place. And I remember, you know, in those days, we got he had a little mini, and we used to scoot around London looking at these venues, and he got a lead on an Irish dance hall in Tottenham Court Road. And um, it's very nice for me to, now, you can drive south on Tottenham Court Road, but for most of my t- life in London, you could only drive north on Tottenham Court Road. But in 1967, we drove south on Tottenham Court Road and parked right in front of where the Blarney Club was at the time, which is now where an Odeon Cinema, I think, is. And, um, and we made a deal with the, the Irish landlord uh, to rent, a, rent the place for £15 pounds on a Friday
0: night. And Pink Floyd were the kind of house band.
1: They were, well, yeah, there was either them or the Soft Machine, and then we added uh, Crazy World of Arthur Brown, and then it got so more. So he used to
0: set fire to his hair yeah, when exactly. he, most nights. And exactly. The, right. And so what was the atmosphere like at a, a good night in, in the UFO club?
1: Well, I would divide it into two parts. There was, for the first three months, it was like a meeting of a secret society all the freaks around London went, wow, there's more of us than we thought <laughs> and, and, um, and people were tripping and people were smoking dope and, and it was just you know, and we were showing W.C. Fields movies at 3am and um, you know I don't know, there was light shows in the corner and people taking their clothes off and I don't know, it, just, it was very anarchic and, and then Arnold Lane came out which yeah. is a single you recorded. A single I recorded it at, with yeah. John yeah. At Sound Techniques. Yeah. And uh, immediately it didn't... The BBC refused to play it because it was salacious in some way about, you know, okay. a guy stealing girls' knickers off the back, back line, the, the washing line. And... Um, uh, but it got to number fifteen, and, and made make a it a
0: hit every time. The BBC banning it, weren't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and,
1: and, and, and suddenly the whole atmosphere changed because it was now people who it was this period from March '67, peaking in June when Sergeant Pepper came out, and that whole quote "Summer of Love," the phenomenon of psychedelic London, which had been an underground thing for a year before that suddenly became an overground thing and you had crowds of people in queues down the street and the police searching people in the queue and, you know, it, was, it was, became a kind
0: of zoo. Uh, so the atmosphere changed a lot. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about Sergeant Pepper because Sergeant Pepper has a place in your story when it comes to connecting with Sandy Denny. That's right, not. yeah. Tell me about your first meeting with Sandy Denny. Well, Sandy... Um,
1: I was... You know, I think I'd seen Sandy at Les Cousins or somewhere at some folk club,
0: and I was... And we should be clear, Les Cousins was a, a, a Soho folk club. There's a, there's a triple album out at the moment paying tribute right. to Les yeah, Cousins. Yeah, exactly. Just, no, it just a come great, out by Anderson. It was a great place,
1: but in those days, there were... The folk world was kind of divided in Britain, and I was intrigued by that, by how... You know, because... Um, Places like here, the, I mean the first time I was in this room, I think at that end, I heard the Wattersons without microphones, just singing the four of them. And, and I heard, you know, Louis Killen and I heard, you know, and it came, mostly unaccompanied singers. And there was a whole circuit of clubs around the country as I'm sure all of you know, where you really rarely saw a guitar unless it was being played by Martin Carthy. <laughs> and and um, and then there were other clubs, like Les Cousins, where you saw John Martin, where you saw Bert Jantz, where you saw John Renborn, where you saw guitarists and singer-songwriters. And I, in a way, I had come to England to get away from singer-songwriters. You know, I kind of... I didn't have a big opinion about that. I kind of thought, mm, I, I like the tradition, I like the f- rock, you know, the psychedelic scene. But singer-songwriters were not my cup of tea exactly. But um, uh, so Sandy, Sandy, Sandy was sang traditional songs, but with a big singer-songwriter voice and strummed her guitar a lot, and and so I was like, mm, not sure. And then. I ran into her at the bar of Les Cousins and and she was hilarious, you know, she was just the most, the funniest person and just completely surreal as a character. And so then the next time I ran into her, um, I don't know, we ended up going for a bite to eat and it was like two o'clock in the morning and, and she said, I'm never gonna get home to Wimbledon. You gotta drive me. And I said, I'm not gonna drive you to Wimbledon. You know, you must be joking. It's, you know, it's miles away. She said, this was June of 1967. And she said, I have a tape of the new Beatles record, which hadn't been released yet. And everybody was talking about it, but a friend of hers had recorded it off, they'd played the whole record on Radio Luxembourg.
0: This is Sergeant Pepper?
1: Yeah. And a friend of hers had recorded it off the air. And she said, I've got that tape. And if you drive me home to Wimbledon, you can hear the tape. <laughs> and so, okay. <laughs> you know, so we drive to Wimbledon, we go and she's tiptoe, you know, her parents were asleep, this dark, sort of quite large house and so I said, okay, well, let's hear the record. She said, well, you know, my parents are asleep. I said, well, come on, you promised I'd come all the way out here to Wimbledon. And so we ended up in the coat closet in the front hall with all these coats around us and a little Wallenzac tape recorder. And she turns it on, and there it goes. You know, Sergeant Pepper, the whole thing. We listened to the whole thing, the two of us sitting there. And I think for her it was a real moment, you know, because I think she in that moment, realized that what she really wanted was the bigger canvas of working with other musicians and doing things, not just singing Scottish ballads. And, you know. and I think very soon after that, she went to Denmark to re- do that record with the Straubs, when she recorded her first version of Who Knows Where the Time Goes, because she, f- she knew they were gonna, she was going to have to sing their songs and so she felt, I better have a song. And that was the first song she ever wrote. She was 19 or something. wasn't Yeah, she? she'd never written a song before. Oh, let's see, I'll write a song. Oh, I guess I'll write, who knows where the time goes.
0: <laughs> Unbelievable. You know? I mean, Anna,
1: Anna McGarrigal, just as a footnote, heard yeah. that Kate had started to write songs in New York. And she thought, well, to compete, my, my sister... Um, um, I better write a song too. So she thought, oh, I better write a song. So she wrote Heart Like a Wheel. <laughs> so the first song
0: of yeah. these two. John, we're coming to the studio yeah. in a moment, but no, I just want to get to Fairport That's Convention a, as well because yeah. you were obviously involved with Fairport Convention. Did you bring them together with Sandy Denny or did they do that now, themselves? You know,
1: it's a, it's a funny story that I basically know. I mean, I thought about it. Because I, from the beginning, when I minute I signed Fairport, I thought it was all about Richard. That he was such a talent, I couldn't not sign them. But I wasn't that sold on Judy Dyble as a vocalist, and I didn't really say, you know, you got to, anything. But I sort of, when they said well, we're thinking of maybe changing, I said, good idea, and. Um, but I didn't recommend Sandy, and I was—I had to go to America with the Incredible String Band. And I called my office every day. And I called my office one day, and they said, "Guess what? The Fairport have added Sandy Denny as vocalist." So I went, "Whoa!" And um, and the next one, as soon as I got home, I went straight to a rehearsal. And I was—I thought that the problem, the reason I didn't think it was an obvious idea, was because I thought Sandy would kind of eat them alive. I thought that she was such a powerful personality. And so, you know, she cursed and she drank and she shouted at people and... And, and, and they were quite polite. they were all very little, polite little Muswell Hill schoolboys, you know. <laughs> and, and, um, and then I got to the rehearsal and Sandy was completely well behaved and very... Because and, she was completely in awe of Richard. You know, I think the minute she realized what she was dealing with, with Richard playing guitar behind her, she was like, "Okay, anything you say," mm-hmm. and she, you know, got very quiet and very, you know, calm and just
0: whatever Richard, whatever you say. You, you must have heard this developing, John, in the studio when they came to do on oh, oh, half yeah. breaking. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, yes, I mean the first Fairport album was the, um, for Polydor. Uh, was really hard work, and i can 't say that I was terribly impressed. I remember uh, Joe telling me that you know Richard is going to be one of the greatest guitarists in the world, and this is like sixteen year old fresh faced <laughs>
1: you
2: know, what um, and it really was it really was hard work the first the first one and then when we did uh, what we did on our holidays um, it what Joe says about Sandy is interesting, but there was always a... I felt there was always some tension between Sandy and Ian. You know? Oh, yeah, Ian, Ian Matthews. Ed, Matthews. Ian Matthews, he was, was Ian, about to at that Ian time. really hadn't come from that... that yeah. know, he'd, he'd, he'd come from a sort of... He was in a he? was pop more of a band, country
0: country singer or... With, with, with well, at the, the time, he'd been he in some
2: something like... I don't know, he was
0: in a group called The Pyramid. That's it, The
2: Pyramid, yeah. Which
1: had a gimmick, which was they had three vocalists in front of the curtain and the
0: band behind the curtain. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah, yeah. but, it, you know, it was very much a sort of singles pop
0: yeah, pop yeah. Yeah. outfit. And Fairport you know, Convention was very different from yeah. the Fairport oh, yes, Convention yeah, that became yeah, the folk yeah. rock band, wasn't it? Because this yeah, was yeah. I mean, influenced no, by American artists mostly the
2: Aeroplane... Birds, you know, yeah. th- th- those were the influences, so they're very different. And it wasn't really until I mean, I always thought the real breakthrough, I suppose, the sort of big difference was when we got to the end of Unhalf Breaking, the third album. Um, the whole album pretty, was pretty much in the can, and 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 we recorded. Mo- we started it all at Sound Techniques, um, and we'd only got four track at the time, and so we finished it off at, 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 at Olympic in Barnes and uh, running it all up to eight track and doing the overdubs, and then they finally said, "Well, we've got this one title we want to do, and, by this, and we've got you know Dave's, this guy Dave Sawbridge coming to play the violin." Because
1: he wasn't a member two, of the we band. We did two titles
2: that night. We did, did uh, c Yeah, but, but, yeah, but C212 was after the, the, the main event. And it was right. an afternoon. It wasn't even an evening, I think. It was an afternoon. Oh, and the yeah. main event was Sailor's Life. Yeah. And they said, we don't want to rehearse it or go through it. We just, you know, got, we're just going to do it. And that, you've got to do it in a one And...
0: And that was significant because it was the first time you heard Swarbrick and, well, that and was Thompson. The first, that
2: was significant because that, that was straight out of the sort of traditional British songbook for whatever, you know, because uh, all the other songs, you know, well, most of them are self-penned in the obligatory Dylan number.
0: Was it the first time that Swarbrick had a pickup on his on his yeah, violin as yeah. well? probably, yeah. First yes, time
1: he yes, went electric, yeah, as yeah, it were. Yeah, he'd, oh, yeah, he'd, never, yeah.
0: he'd never played yeah. with an electric pickup, but yeah. he was he was sort of intrigued by it.
2: Yeah. And it went down as a one I mean, that's...
0: Yeah. And then we have to deal with the tragic events that, that yes, unfolded yeah, before yeah, Legion yeah, Leaf yeah. because there was a car crash, a van crash, as they were coming back from a gig uh, when the road manager fell asleep at the wheel and uh, Richard Thompson's girlfriend and Martin Lamble, the drummer, yeah. were yeah, both killed. Yeah. And that must have been the most horrendous blow for the no. band, Joe. Did you speak to them at the time? Well, well I was in America. We
2: were in America. Yeah. We yeah. Were, I think we were mixing the album.
0: Yeah. And we were um, um, it I and,
1: flew back yeah. and, uh, you know, and they, their first, I think I spoke to Simon or Ashley or Richard, somebody, the first thing they said was, it's over, we're never going to, the group will break up because they couldn't, you know, they just didn't want to th- imagine carrying on without Martin. And, and playing the
0: material that they'd recorded with Martin would have been yeah, very difficult yeah. for them, presumably.
1: Hmm. And yeah. and eventually they and this is this is how we come to have this word that's being used tonight for the subject of this talk, folk rock, because <laughs> because um, they finally said, "Okay, we're going to carry on, but we're not going to do any of the same material. We're going to have to have a whole new repertoire." And they were, they, the, what they'd done with Sailor's life really resonated with them. And when they decided what they were going to be as a completely new blank sheet was a band that played British traditional music with that lineup.
0: And that became Legion Leaf. You know. And and yeah. Dave Swarbrick was added to the band yeah, Dave, yes, Dave yeah, Mattox yeah. arrived uh, yeah, yeah. from he was a, from a dance music background yeah, and yeah. I think I I've always felt that that was one of the most important things that made that
1: work was that Mattox was not a rock drummer he was not a backbeat heavy guy he had played for you know big band jazz big band sort of tea dances and you know, mecca ballrooms and stuff like that. And, um, and so he didn't have that rock impulse. His impulse was, what's, where is the dance rhythm in this? And so that was the what, what he would play. And um, and I think that's what made the record, that's what makes the record endure, is the, is the fact that it's rhythmically, so unusual and so different and so new and, as, and it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's something nobody ever really did before I mean you know obviously Jimmy Shand Records as a drummer you know, mm. but this was applying a whole other sort of thought process with Ashley and Richard and Simon uh, working with with
0: Matex and John, John, were you aware that you were creating a new sound? Because that's really what was happening in the studio when you were recording Legion uh, Leaf. Oh,
2: God. It, I, I had a, Richard and I had terrible arguments in the recording yeah. of Legion Leaf, actually, because Richard was very hung up on the band. The Big Pink album had come out, yeah. and, it, and, he, and, he, and he was trying to make me... Uh, somehow he wanted DM to sound like... Um,
1: Levon Helm, Leave on
2: Helm, you know, and he's like wanting wanting to roll the top off the drums, and I mean, it's like everything that I would never do normally. And no, we did have quite a lot of argument about it. Uh,
1: I remember John, you know, these because you know the the sound of the Big Pink, the sound of Levan Helm's snare drum on that is very thud thud.
2: But it's because of the kit he Exactly, exactly, and
1: and and um, and they would keep saying, "For John, we wanted to sound... And John kept saying, if you want it to sound like that, you have to play it like that. Yeah,
2: or, or get, leave or no. <laughs> get, a, get a new drum kit. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. yeah. no, don't I'd, I'd really. And I'd, I'd so it
0: was th- rather fraught in its genesis for you. Yeah, it was, yeah.
2: yeah. It, it's, I, I can't say it's my... There are two or three tracks on it I really like, but it, I'm much, I, for me, this sort of unhalf-bricking was, is my, still my favourite for album.
0: Mm. I think it's true to say that no two Fairport albums have the same right. lineup from that classic period anyway, yeah. uh, was that disturbing for you as a producer or did you well, enjoy that?
1: I mean it was depressing that, I mean I was really blindsided with Sandy and Ashley leaving right after
0: Leech and Leaf came out So you established this new sound yeah. and then two and of then the key people who created it yeah. leave the band Yeah <laughs> And um, But I have
1: to say that, you know, that year from the time that Sandy and Ashley left, when Dave Pegg joined, and that was a funny story, because Pegg, um, basically, they you know, they needed a new bass player, and they were putting ads in Melody Maker and all this kind of stuff. And Swarbrick kept saying... I know this guy in Birmingham, he's a really great bass player. And they kept saying, Swarb, just back off, you know. You're not a rock and roller, you're a folkie. What do you know about ba- electric bass players? You don't know anything. And he said, No, no, this guy's really good. Well, who's he play with now? The Ian Campbell Folk Group. <laughs> and 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 they said, Richard and Simon said, Come on, get out of here, Swarb, you know. And he just made such a pest of himself that they said Okay, bring him down, we'll audition him, you know. And so they set up this, there this, was like four bass players coming at different intervals, and they set up in a rehearsal room, and I went there. And, I, and Peg comes down, and he's a bit shy, and he comes in, and he plugs in, his, he has this electric bass, not a stand-up, the way he plays with Ian Campbell. And so I think they decided they'd get rid of him quick. And so they said, okay, we'll do Tam Lin. And they start off Tamlin at like double speed. And it has all those very complicated bass runs that Ashley had recorded, you know. And Peg just goes, duh, 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 you know, like, like playing absolutely the parts perfectly in time at speed and more powerfully than Ashley ever thought of playing them. And they're all kind of looking at him like, who is this guy? And within about 15 minutes, they had a new bass player.
0: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to some yeah. other artists that you work with. I mean, I, I, I want to talk about Nick Drake, um, obviously, who played a big part in both your lives. You, and um, I, I wonder how you recall your first meeting with him, Joe.
1: Well, you know, he,
0: ca- he came into the office because
1: I Ashley Hutchings is the one who saw him heard him play, I thought, got his phone number, and then gave it to me and said, call this guy. He's really interesting. I called him, he came in, left me a tape, shuffled, you know, very quiet, didn't say much. And then I heard the songs, three songs, and I thought, wow, this is pretty amazing. And so I called him up, and he came back in, and we, you know, we had a very nice conversation. He agreed with everything I... Suggested about the and a lot of what I was suggesting was kind of influenced by the new Leonard Cohen album and also by In My
0: Life and then. Um, so you were know, suggesting arrangements, yeah, to him yeah, for the songs. Said, yeah, and
1: and but then of course we had that weird experience. You know, I in the book that's out, Richard Morton Jack's book, tells a little more backstory about. During this time that we were trying to figure out how to do this record, he was his relationship with Robert Kirby was just grow, expand, was yeah. evolving. So you were looking for an arranger. Right. We hired somebody recommended by Peter Asher, who'd done some string charts for the James Taylor record on Apple. And then we didn't really like it. And,
2: um, and Nick certainly didn't like it. You know, yeah, but, and well, he was but suggesting and I didn't he, like
0: it either. And yeah. Nick was suggesting Robert Kirby.
2: Yeah, he said, "I've got this friend at college." Yeah, and, and you know, because you know, Joe and I are going, <laughs> sort of well, but not I, not hundred percent agreed with it. But anyway, but you know, so what? So, so his friend at college, and I never realised until uh, Richard Morton Jack's book came out how long a gap it was. Yeah, between. The Houston stuff and and, and the uh, and, and and Robert turning up. But anyway, the, the, the sessions with Robert, we'd already recorded two or three titles with Nick, with um, probably with just solo cello and other, you know bits and pieces. Danny Thompson. Uh, yeah, and done stuff with Danny. And um, anyway, so Robert comes in and uh, he tells us what the, li- the lineup he wants which is basically double string quartet you know and um, I get it we booked him out of the ECO I think
0: and, and Robert proved himself obviously in that session so what- well
2: Robert turns up you know and I think the first thing we did was uh, we just his way to blue and you just I just pushed push the faders up you it just it was,
1: yeah I mean it was I, was, I was just I'll never forget that moment because I you know in the, in, you're in the, this control room up above the studio in sound techniques and I was, John was down arranging microphones and then he would always want to listen to each instrument separately and so I'd hear this line with sort of in the distance the other parts and I go oh that sounds interesting and John can, no no you can't hear it i want to hear that now oh, I need to hear the cello on its own. And I'd say, can I hear it all? No, 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 you can't hear it now. And, uh, you know, and so I was sort of thinking, I want to hear it all together. And finally, John pushed all the faders up, and the sound came, and I just went,
0: oh, my God. And did you feel the same, John?
2: Oh, Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 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 (laughs) You, and know, you know, you know when, when, when I know quality when I hear it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but the, but the, is, the issue for Nick, presumably, was, was how to promote his record because, you know, yeah. you could make a beautiful record and you did make three beautiful records, but he had difficulty going out live, didn't he? Yeah, he, he was,
1: you know... I mean, the thing that's so frustrating and so maddening about the story of Nick and... Um, the one moment... Where the circumstances were perfect, it's where his story crosses with Fairport and Legion Leaf, because that at the, in the autumn of sixty-nine, uh, when um, they had finished this, we finished this record, and they were going to re- launch their new lineup with a concert at the Festival Hall, and it was a, it was sort of happened because Roy Guest had a date, and he said. Come on, let's do fair. let's get it all rolling, let's put Fairport, even before the record came out. And so nobody had heard what they were gonna do. And the audience was real fans. You know, they were fans of Fairport, they were fans of Sandy, Richard, they were fans, I dare say, even of Witch Season. You know, and the place was full. And because of the tragedy, it was very respectful. You know, everybody was really on their best behavior. And John and Beverly came out and did... John Martin? Yeah, John and Martin. Beverly, Beverly Martin. Martin came out and did half an hour as the opening Cause, because Fairport couldn't do a whole concert because they didn't have a big enough repertoire. They'd only done enough for a record, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. So that was all we knew. That was all they were going to do in the second half of the concert. And so John and Beverly did half an They were good and then went off and Nick Drake comes out just by himself and he says nothing. And he starts, he plays a song and then after the song he retunes the guitar and he has no jokes, no patter. All he does is look down at the guitar and retune it. And then he plays another song and then he retunes his guitar because every, and what I later learned about Nick was that that unique sound of his chords on the guitar come from his attempt to, sound, to emulate the piano chords that his mother made because she was a songwriter and she wrote songs that were positioned somewhere between you know um, Noel Coward and Flanders and Swan and I don't know something like that but she had this very self-taught way of playing the piano. And Nick grew up with that sound, and that's the sound that he's replicating in these odd tunings. But he said nothing. And then he played his 20 minutes or 25 minutes and got up and walked off. And he got this huge ovation. The crowd just, and they kept absolutely still for the entire time. And I ran backstage and said, get back on stage and do an encore really and he did he kind of went back and he played things behind the sun which i'd never heard which he'd never offered to us for the record we were in the middle of making brighter later and he would never suggested this incredible song and you could see what he could do with an you know how an audience could respond to him but then you know i would see him at a club and there's people drinking beer and putting their glasses down on the table, and, and he takes five minutes to tune, and everybody starts talking to the person at their table, and he mutters something very, very quietly into the microphone. Nobody stops talking. And then he starts playing very quietly. Nobody stops talking. And the whole thing is, is so demoralizing to him that he just would leave the stage and, you
0: know, so John, were you, aware, were you aware of the pressure on him and the the, the mental health issues starting to emerge?
2: Uh, well, yeah, but not until well after it was well after. Friday fi- um, later. Well, really. but but yeah, I have
1: to say, John and his wife at the time um,
2: but, uh, were
1: very very supportive of Nick and used to, you know, she, you know. Invite Nick for dinner. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I like
2: you know, and he used to come and st- been after after five leaves left. he yeah, you know, he used to come and stay for a couple of days when he was living in Suffolk. And uh, I mean, one day we even took him over to see Danny Thompson, who was living in. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, presumably, they're two very different characters.
2: <laughs> they were, and they weren't. Funnily enough, um, Nick was always. I I always felt it was a clash of real clash of cultures with Nick I don't don't think Nick was ever really suited to the rough and tumble of a popular folk whatever you want to call it musician I mean he, I, well but
1: I, but you know in a way I, I, you know there's, there's it's true in a way but there's another side of that which is that I loved seeing Danny and Nick together because oh, yeah. Nick was very shy yeah. and he never said anything yeah. and Danny would come in and slap him on the back and say, what's your cat got your tongue?
2: Yeah. You know. It's a shame that they never gigged actually because yeah. mm. that probably might have worked. Yeah,
1: because mm. Danny could have yeah. probably it, talked it, to the it, audience. And, yeah. and, and,
2: and, and just, I suppose in some ways Nick, I think Nick always needed reassurance in a way.
0: And, and but, could but, he be assertive in the studio, I mean did he know exactly oh yes, what he wanted? Yeah, oh
2: yes, I'm the most assertive person I've probably ever worked with. Really? Oh yeah, yeah.
0: Because he wanted a different approach for Pink Moon, didn't he?
2: Well, even before that, when we were when we were recording uh, Five Leaves, Lit, um, when we were recording right, Brighter Later, uh, at least two tracks went down the tubes because he wanted to change the drummer, and that's how we started using Mike Kowalski.
0: Right. So, but oh, you know, yeah. I understand that he wanted he wanted to yeah. be more stripped back, to be more... more uh, well, not well he, yes, apparently, I,
2: you know, I ever, never knew this at the time, but apparently this interview he did with Jerry Gilbert um, saying that he just was... That's all he wanted to do for his next record. He just wanted to just do it with guitar and in the studio with me. And apparently, you know... But I, ne- I never knew that. All I ever, you know... i
0: did, did you, I kept in contact well, I mean, Did dirt. he tell that to you, Joe, obviously? Well, you yeah, he involved, did, I, mean, you? He,
1: I mean, the thing was that we were finishing Brighter Later as I was preparing the ground to leave for California. And, you know, in retrospect, you know, I was, at the time, you know, I was, what, 28 or something like that, and I was just burnt out from trying to keep which season alive and the idea of, moving to California and having a salary and having somebody else worry about the, the payroll. Um, you know, I just felt, oh, that's what I need. And, and all the artists, one after another, all the artists that I dealt with at which season started doing something I, against my advice. You know, the Credible String Band became Scientologists. <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> Richard started arguing with me over his solos. You know, there was, um, and um, and refused to allow Poor Will and the Jolly Hangman to go on full house, which I thought was essential to make the album rounder. And um, one after another, there was one thing. And then Nick, at the end of Brighter Later, at the when we finished mixing it, he turned to me and he said, "The next album I'm going to do is just guitar and voice." And I thought, "Well, you don't need me for that." And so when the offer came to go, to, you know, work at Warner Brothers, I said, "Yeah, I'm out of here." And so the um, that was um, the end of 1970, and and then you know, and then he went in the studio with John and made the album that now sells twice as much as <laughs> Five Leaves Left or Brighter Later. Not but, twice as much, but a lot more. Yeah, and but of course before
2: it- before I'd even done that, actually. D- d- I don't know if Joe even remembers this but he, Joe left me a, uh, Joe's legacy for me when he decided to go back to America was he said to me do you think you could make a record with John Martin solo record with John Martin for 2000 quid and that was um, bless the weather and that's, so that was my first... So
0: that was a nice a nice, yeah. so <laughs> yeah. The first time it, I
2: actually put a producer's hat on, for what it's worth. And, uh, yeah. and uh, so
0: uh, but just to finish on the Nick Drake story, obviously yeah. it has a tragic ending, yeah. as we know yeah. that he died of an overdose of antidepressants and the coroner recorded a verdict of suicide, although I think, Joe, you might doubt well, that. You know, I but think I'm just going to get yeah. to... Because, yeah. John, I think you had to call Joe and tell him...
2: No, 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 no. We were in America doing something when we both. No, were, no, that, that's
0: right? when that's when we heard the about, about. No, Freud, I
2: know right? about Floyd. Uh, about, no. uh, not Floyd. No, no, about uh, Nick. Fairport, but Nick.
1: I don't. I was in California. I don't think you were there. Yeah,
2: I think I was. I, really? th- I think well, I the, was because we didn't. Neither of us went to the funeral. That's right. That's right.
0: That's right. You must have heard the news of his death, and that must oh, have yes. been. Yeah, 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 yes, yes. And I remember, yeah. and I think
2: it may but, have been Sheila, my wife, who called me. But I mean. Yeah. I don't. Wouldn't it wouldn't We a, weren't surprised.
0: It wasn't a huge surprise. Yeah, we weren't because surprised because he'd been getting worse. Yeah, he was yeah. getting
1: worse and worse. And yeah. and you know and here's a guy. I mean here's the the story of Nick in a way in from A to Z in the studio. You know he in the studio. I think I don't think I'm exaggerating. John will probably tell me I'm exaggerating, but we at a certain point. John and I got in the habit when we were recording Nick with a bunch of other musicians. Nick's guitar playing was always perfect. He never made a mistake and so we would sometimes switch off the monitor of Nick's guitar and voice even and listen to the bass and drums and the strings or whatever else was going on because that was where the little subtle mistakes might happen that you would not want to miss, and you would not want to say okay we've got a, we've got a good take, and then find out when you go to mix it that there's something a little wrong and um, because Nick was just perfect, and then we'd listen back with Nick in the mix, and it would be great and but we would have stopped okay, let's start again because so the bass player made a mistake, and then Four years later, we're in the studio recording those famous last four songs, hanging on a star and all of those. And Nick couldn't play and sing at the same time. He had to he laid down a guitar track and then we overdubbed voice. And the contrast between this consummate master, you know, who was absolutely more in charge of his instrument than almost anyone else I've ever worked with. More in command, I should say. And this guy who struggled to put down a guitar track, except without and he couldn't f- f- sing and play at the same time, well enough to record that was the deterioration of mm-hmm. Nick. Thank the reason
0: you. I haven't got uh, the original album cut here is because the albums are, I've got the, uh, a box set of of the three albums, but the reason I haven't got them is because they're five hundred pounds each now. Oh, <laughs> those, I, yes. those original albums. Yes, you know, so that's how much they, they they go for. Let, let's talk about John Martin for a second, because yes, right. John, I mean John was a, a an, an incredibly uh, interesting character. Yes, uh, well, I remember you watching could say a BBC that. Four documentary about him and his excessive habits and, yeah. and all yeah. of that so when you're working with john martin on bless the weather and on solid air what was his approach in the studio um
2: what was his approach well uh i think i don't think john was ever very confident well, certainly the two records i did with him he I, I don't think he was ever very confident when he made them um he would uh, it, it was quite Bless the weather was easier to make than than Solid Air, um, because I didn't have a pr- problem with getting the getting him to use the people I wanted him to play with, um, and because we I think we used DM I think Peggy's on it. Uh, Dave Matics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dan on it. Um, but then when we came to make Solid Air, he decided that he wanted. To use a complete, he'd 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 been doing stuff with Kossoff and had wanted to sort of change direction, and I don't know. Obviously, didn't see himself in a folk dimension at all. I think he he saw himself much more as a jazz person. And and the first session we ever did for uh, Solid Air, which was at Sound Techniques, he turned up with this. Rhythm section that he determined he was going to use. Um, I think we had rabbit on. We still had rabbit on keyboards, but the bass and the face and drums I'd never worked with before, and I thought they were terrible. And uh, anyway, did uh, you tell him? I didn't have to. I fell down the stairs actually. <laughs> really? Yeah. I literally fell down the stairs at Sound Techniques because, as you already said, we had this. It, we had a very eccentric staircase that we the original staircase up to the office was made of Dexion. <laughs> so and anyway, and it had an un, un you know un
1: irregular irregular uneven. rather yeah. gap
2: at the on the last step. Anyway, I I went over sprained an ankle, and we had to postpone the sessions, and because I couldn't work, at which point we couldn't get the drummer and the bass player back. So luckily, we got Danny back. You got Danny Thompson himself. Yeah, we got Danny back. (laughs) That's very sacrificing, isn't it? (laughs) yeah, (laughs) Yeah, and DM. And and then we went into Basingstrasse, as was used to And then
0: that that changed. I mean, that's another classic album, of course. Without your sprained ankle, it could have been very different. It could have been a bunch of old rubbish.
2: Without my sprained ankle, I think probably he would have fired me off the job because I I wasn't getting on at all with this rhythm section.
0: (laughs) We're going to have to draw this to a close unless there's an urgent question. I just wanted to ask you about your relationship because I read (laughs) that you've been described as the good cop, bad cop. In no, the studio Is that, that fair? No, I no, so. I mean, I don't know which was the good cop and which was the bad cop, by the way. I'm not <laughs> gonna I'm not gonna venture a view about that.
1: No, I mean there was there was an John always had a slight you know, that that debate about Levon Helm's drum sound, you know. I mean I would sort of be oh how great, you guys bought the big pink album, isn't it great? And then, you know, Matt would say come on, John, can't you get my snares? And John would say, you know, don't talk rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so there was that element. But, um, but also, between, without the artists around, I think um, one of the things that has been the most formative and important thing for me in learning about producing records was the good luck I had in, you know, ending up at Sound Techniques and working with John. Because in subsequent years, I worked with some very great engineers. But, you know, they're used to being nice. They're used to pleasing a client. You know, they have clients who come in who are paying well. You don't want to really rub them the wrong way. John never worried about that (laughs) and and so I felt but it was so great it was liberating because I felt free to say I got an idea let's do this let's try this and John would say you're out of your fucking mind (laughs) and and um, and I would and and I would say oh really why and then he'd explain why oh okay well I guess that doesn't work but sometimes I would say, I don't care, we're doing it anyway. And But it was great to know that there was this sort of control mechanism that I could push the boundaries and try new ideas and things and I could rely on John telling me I was out of my mind um, when I was.
2: Right, well, and, and it was also a two-way thing, you know? I mean, I, I would never have got to... Learn about half half as much as I ended up by knowing about music, and I would have never had the opportunity to work with some of the musicians I've worked with. You know,
0: you know. If it wasn't for Joe.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I had a charmed, in some ways, a charmed life because, I, you know, if I hadn't have found somebody else I could shout out, I'd have been out of. <laughs> What have I been doing? I don't know.
0: (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, will you please say thank you to Joe Boyd and John Wood.